passage comes from Exodus chapter 29, verses 35 through 46. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find the passage on page 70. Exodus 29, 35 through 46. Hear now, O church, God's holy and inerrant word. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is like honey to our lips. That when your word goes out, that it does not return void, but that it accomplishes that which you purpose. And I pray as your word is preached and taught this morning, that you fulfill your promise to do a work within us. That we take the truths that we hear to be able to apply it in our lives so that we will be able to conform to the character of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to serve with our college students on a short-term mission trip during their spring break here in Houston. Three of those days was spent serving at a ministry called The Forge in the Third Ward. One of those days, we had the opportunity to work amongst the homeless. Our host, prior to going out to spend time with the homeless, taught us a lesson. And in this lesson, he made a statement that I continue to think about that continues to run around in my mind. He said that when it comes to serving the homeless, oftentimes serving puts us in a position of power. 
But being served, on the other hand, puts you in a position of humility. And I was thinking to myself, but I thought we're supposed to serve in humility. And as I thought about his statement more, I began to understand it because when we think that we go to serve the homeless, we have the resources. We have the care packages, we have the bottled water, we have the food, the medical services, the coats. We have things and they have nothing. That to serve them means that we come up from a position of having much where they are in a position of having little. And to be humble requires us to think through how can the homeless actually serve us even though they have little, even though they may not have anything. And as I pondered this thought some more, and as we went out to speak with the homeless, I could see that it was true. That oftentimes we come with an attitude, we have so much to give to people, but others have very little to give to us. And I wonder sometimes if that's a part of just our mentality, of our temperament and our thinking. I mean, we value competency, independence, being able to do things well. I mean, if you're not competent, you get passed over for a position or advancement at work or even for school, grad school, medical school, fellowship, law school. If you're not competent, you're passed over. We value competency. And then I began to think, I wonder if we also transfer that mentality also into our spiritual lives as well. That we think that we can draw close to God without any help from any other person. That we can do it on our own strength and our own ability. That intimacy with God solely depends upon me. I mean, there are some believers, present company excluded, who think that they can stay at home and have a worship service. They stream a sermon. They order the communion elements online. They baptize themselves in their bathtubs as the pastor says a benediction over them. That service I can create on my own. And if I feel spiritually dry, then I just need to read my Bible more, pray more, serve more. And if I do these things, then I will cultivate a greater intimacy with God because it's about what I can do. And yet there's a part of us that also knows that it's not true. That there's something within us that is crying out, help. We want to wave a flag to our brothers and sisters in Christ saying, help me. But we oftentimes don't know what to ask. So how do we actually ask believers to help us draw near to God? How do we invite other believers to help us grow in our relationship with the Lord? And it's interesting because when you look at the book of Exodus, God saves Israel from Egypt. The moment is when they cross through the Red Sea. 
Then God brings them to Mount Sinai where they receive the law and stipulations of how a relationship is to be conducted with God. Then they receive instructions on how to create a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, a place where God would meet with them. Then the obvious question is then, can any Israelite draw near to God on their own? Let's say the tribe of Judah wants to make a sin offering. Do they send their grandchild, hey Malachi, go pick out a lamb, and then dad's going to go to the tent of meeting, and I'll offer the sacrifice there. Or maybe the tribe of Issachar is thinking, I want to offer up the incense today, so let's go send Malachi, and he'll go and set up the altar of incense and burn the incense. But it's not that way that God, out of the thousands of Israelites, chose one family from one tribe to help all of them draw near to God. That all the Israelites would need to ask the specific family help to draw near to God. That you can't draw near to God on your own. That you would need a mediator a helper, a person to serve as your representative before God. That God sets up this worship system where you are actually dependent on other people, that you are dependent on God. So when we look at the system, we learn and we see what are things that we need to ask help for. And there are three requests that I think that we can make of other believers three things that we can invite other believers to help us in. And we see this in our text this morning. So what is the first request that we can make of other believers? Well, first, I think that we can ask believers to remind you of your identity, to remind you of who you are. Who are you? Who am I? And that other believers we should be able to invite into our lives to remind us of that. In the time of the construction of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, God selects a specific family from the tribe of Levi. Not even all the Levites can actually go into the temple or go into the tent. Only a specific family. And God selects Aaron's family to serve as priests intermediaries, to remind Israel of their relationship with God. We see God's selection of Aaron's family in Exodus chapter 28. So if your Bible's there, please turn there with me if you're not there already. We see that God chooses from the tribe of Levi, specifically Aaron's family. Not Moses' family, not Miriam's family, Aaron's family. And verse 1 says this, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Here we see that there is a specific family set apart. But then how would we know that this is the set-apart family that's supposed to represent Israel before God? How do we know that they are distinct? How do we know that they are different? 
Well, God distinguishes Aaron's family through three things. The first is through vestments, through their garments, through their clothing. Just as you know, when someone's wearing a white lab coat with a scope around their neck, the profession is probably in the medical field. Just as you see on the roads, when someone's wearing a neon vest, they're probably working for a construction company. If you're from California, if someone's wearing blue and has that hard hat, you know that they're probably working for the utility company. We only have one there, PG&E. That their outfits determine what type of work that they do. And we see that God distinguishes Aaron's family through various elements of clothing. And we see this in verse 3 through 5. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now, if you notice in verse 5, there are a few colors that are mentioned. Gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, if you've read the construction of the tabernacle very carefully, you should also know that those same colors, just as Rice's colors are blue and white, that these are the colors of the tabernacle in the sense that there is this idea that just the same elements that are made to construct the tabernacle are the same elements that are used to make the priest's garments. That they are one of the same. That these individuals, because of the clothing that they wear, are associated with the service of the tabernacle because of those colors. Now, not only does he have these garments, but there's also this idea of an anointing with oil. There's this oil that is used to anoint and set apart the priest for service. And we see this in chapter 29, verse 7. So if you can turn there with me. Verse 7 says this. You shall take the anointing oil of a certain ingredient type that is described later. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now, oftentimes the pouring of oil over the head of a person is to set them apart for a certain type of office. Now, if you recall in the Old Testament, if you think in the future, when Saul receives the anointing of oil, he then is selected to be king. Or when David is anointed with oil, he is also selected to be king. That the anointing of oil is to demonstrate a change of office, a set-apart, a distinguishment that this person is set apart for a specific work. Now, not only does he have these different types of clothing, not only does he have this different anointing with oil, but that God distinguishes Aaron's family through an ordination ceremony. And we see this in chapter 9, verse 35 to 37. Verse 35 to 37. 
It says this, Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So this idea of not only ordaining the priesthood, but also the altar and the elements used in the tent of meeting is ordained. Now notice that how long does it take? It takes seven days. Now if you've read in the book of Genesis, seven days is this idea of completeness. But also the idea of seven days has a connotation of creating something. Because God created all that we see, both visible and invisible, in seven days. And so this idea of the length of days is this creation of a new office, a priesthood, to continue to distinguish Aaron's family from the rest of Israel. Now, how are the priests to remind Israel of their identity? How is Israel to remind Israel of their relationship with God? And it's through overseeing the sacrificial system. First and foremost, the offering of a lamb both day and night. We see this in chapter 29, verse 38, and also verse 42. Let me read verse 38 to you first. Verse 38 says this, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar to lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. And verse 42, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. That when this lamb is offered both in the morning and in the evening as a burnt offering, that means no one eats any part of it, no lamb chops for anyone, because the whole thing is burnt up. Meaning, that they are people who are wholly devoted to God. Because the burnt offering is to demonstrate fellowship, relationship with God. Then when it's offered in the morning and in the evening, it's to remind Israel that you have a special relationship with the Lord. And not only that, verse 45 and 46 delineate how special that relationship is. In verse 45 to 46, it says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Notice that in verse 46, it doesn't say the Lord your God. It says the Lord their God, indicating that out of all the peoples of the world, that God would have a unique and special relationship with Israel. That the priest, through its service, through what they do, would remind Israel each and every day that they are people redeemed by God. Now, we don't have a sacrificial system. If you go out to the lobby, there's not an altar there where Fred, Jason, or myself offer up a lamb in the morning or in the evening. If you come in the morning and evening, we might not be here depending on how early or how late you come. But we do have this idea that as believers, that Jesus Christ serves as our high priest 
and that he reminds us of our relationship with God. Christ, just like Aaron, is distinct, not because he wears any garment, but it's because he is perfect. That within him there is no sin, that he's holy and set apart. They lived a perfect life. And we see that in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews continues to remind us, the author writes and talks about this idea that because Jesus Christ died on the cross without having to offer a lamb or bull, but offering up himself, it serves also as a reminder to us the price that was paid to redeem us, to redeem us to have a relationship with God. So that when we doubt whether or not God loves us or even cares for us, we look at the cross. We look at our Savior who was hung there, who gave his life to restore us to him, to restore us to God. We think that our works are not good enough, that our service is insufficient. We think about Christ, who hung on the cross and said, it is finished. That the work that was done for you is complete to remind you that even if the world, your family, your friends, your classmates, say that you have no significance, Jesus says, you have significance. You have value because I gave my life for you. And that Christ serves as our high priest forever to remind us of that special relationship. But then God also selects believers as priests to remind others of their relationship with God as well. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter reminds us that we are a chosen people, a royal nation, but also a priesthood to proclaim the wonders of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That just as Christ is our high priest, he has commissioned us, his followers, to also be priests as well. To remind one another, to remind each other, that our significance, our identity, is not found in what we work or what we do, but our identity first and foremost is in Christ. That we are not engineers, ministers, Students, lawyers, husbands, wives, boyfriend, girlfriends, friends, acquaintances first, but that we are those who have been called out of darkness and into the light, that we are a people who are redeemed. And we need to learn to ask believers to remind us of that identity, of who we are. So what's the second thing that we can ask for? What is the second thing that we can ask believers to help us with? Now, I know in your outlines it says, probably ask believers to help you examine your life. And as I mulled over it some more yesterday, I was thinking that it's probably better to say, ask believers to help you follow God. So this is minister's prerogative to cross out and change the outline during the sermon. Uh, to say that the second point should probably be, instead, ask believers to help you follow God to help you really pursue the Lord, to deal with your struggles, 
to help you overcome them, that believers should help you follow the Lord. Now, how did the priests in the times of Israel help them follow the Lord? Well, Aaron is given a responsibility. Uh, we find this responsibility in chapter 28, verse 38. This responsibility is that Aaron is to ensure that the worship service, the sacrifices that are all offered, the incense that is burned, has to be proper. Uh, we see this in chapter 28, verse 38. Verse 38 says this, It shall be on Aaron's forehead, referring to this turban. And then the later half of 38 says, And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. That Aaron is ultimately responsible because he wears this turban, saying, Holy to the Lord, that whatever sacrifices he offers, it means that he's done his inspection of it. That when... A person brings a lamb into the tent of meeting. He's to make sure that it has all four legs. It's not missing an ear or an eye, right? That this lamb is also age-appropriate because there are certain age restrictions in terms of the sacrifice. That he's to make sure that this lamb is appropriate to offer to the Lord. That he ensures that the worship of God is proper. Not only is he supposed to inspect and take care of the sacrifices, whether it be a lamb or bull or possibly other animals, maybe turtle doves, there's also this idea of how he's supposed to offer the incense. And even the incense needs to be proper because when you offer something that is not according to the ritual or the instructions of the Lord, it will ultimately result in your death. Uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu learned this particular lesson in the book of Leviticus when they offer up fire that was, let's just say, inappropriate, and it consumed them. Why? Why is it that Aaron has to inspect the sacrifices that are given, the incense that is burned? It's because they needed to remind Israel that God is holy. That yes, you may have a special relationship with God, but it doesn't negate God's holiness. It does not negate God's distinctiveness, God's moral purity, that just because you're able to relate with him does not change God's character because God's character is holy, set apart. And the way that we worship him has to fit the instructions that God has given us. And so the priest would help the Israelites learn the sacrifice they offered, but also to remind them of the holiness of God. And we see this idea carried further even for the priests, that Aaron, as well as his sons, would have to learn the purifying rituals for the priests as well by washing their hands and their feet. We see this in chapter 30, verse 21. Verse 21 says this in chapter 30, 21 says, they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. That they would go to the laver, as Fred explained last Sunday, or the basin, that this brawn basin where they would wash their hands. Now, when they washed their hands, it wasn't very clean. I mean, 
who knows how many animals would have to go through the tent of meeting each day. So they would have to clean off the blood, the entrails, the guts, the gore in these basins. And this basin, I doubt, would be very clear. And it's a reminder to them of the price, the cost that was paid in order for Israel to have a relationship with the Lord. Now, we may think that, man, that's tedious. It's very tedious to have a relationship with God for Israel. But think about also the graciousness of God, that God who is holy is willing to allow a people to enter into his presence through the offering of, in Israel's day, lamb, goats, or bulls. But we also know that as believers, Jesus helps us follow the Lord as well. That Jesus aids us in our pursuit of God. Because he also, again, is our high priest. And why does he aid us, or how does he do that? He aids us when we are tempted, because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That he understands our temptations. And that he's able to aid us, to help us. Now you may be wondering, well, how does Jesus help us? He doesn't magically appear when I'm in struggle and then tell us, don't do it. But I think oftentimes when we sense that struggle between right and wrong, we sense a tension. We sense a conflict. And that tension and that conflict is oftentimes Jesus, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to tell us, consider carefully. And in those times, God may bring promises from his word into our minds to remind us to choose right. Now, not only does he aid us in temptation, but he also cleanses us from sin. In 1 John 1, 9, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we sin, Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to cleanse us whenever wrongdoing, if we confess it to him. Now, we also as believers have a responsibility to help each other follow the Lord as well. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, there's this idea that if anyone is getting caught in sin or transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That we are to help one another to be able to see what areas of sin or struggle there may be in our lives. That we have to invite other believers to inspect our lives to see what areas of sin we may be struggling with. And it's not very easy, nor is it very comfortable. Because if you're going to ask your accountability partner, can you help me identify areas of sin in my life? Then you have to be prepared to be quiet and to actually listen to what areas of sin your brother or your sister may actually identify. I remember on our spring break mission trip with the college students again, there was an opportunity when a person came to speak about work and faith. And he worked with Asian Americans at Princeton University, I think. And if my memory is incorrect, the students can correct me later. And we asked him, so what do you see as the primary struggles with Asian American students at Princeton? And this is a Caucasian professor at a seminary. He said, overwork, 
over stress, trying to meet parental expectation, and they don't know how to rest. And I was like, well, all the students are like, mm, spot on, right? And that to even invite that question to ask, what are areas that we struggle with, we actually have to listen to and figure out how can we actually identify those areas so that we can address them. But we don't address them alone. That if you look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it talks about how we're to bear one another's burdens. That this is not, let me show you where your sin areas are and go try and fix them next week. Let me know how it goes but that we are to help one another overcome that sin, overcome those struggles, overcome those challenges, that we are in it together. Now, what does it look like to struggle with sin? It means that when you are tempted, how do you deal with the temptation? That perhaps you may come up with a plan that makes you slower to give in to that particular temptation. And that over the course of time, with the help of others, the slowness to give in to temptation may eventually lead to you not having that particular struggle anymore. And that we need to help each other do that well. The third request that we can make of other believers is this, to ask believers to intercede for you, to ask them to pray for you. And we see this uh, in Israel for the priests as well, that the high priest represented Israel before God. Well, how did he do this? Well, if you flip to chapter 28, he does this in two ways. The first is through these shoulder plates. Two plates made of gold, within them inserted two onyx stones. Underneath each stone, six names on this side, six names on the other. And the priest would bear these names before God. In chapter 28, verse 12, it says this, And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And it's as though when Aaron puts on these shoulder plates, he is remembering that I'm representing Israel before God and also the weightiness of that particular task. And then the second piece of garment that reminds the high priest to bear Israel before God is this breast piece. And on this breast piece, you would have this plate with these 12 stones. Underneath each stone would be a name of Israel. And this plate was also to remind the high priest that he represented Israel before God. We see this in verse 29. Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breast piece of judgment on his heart, when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And so with these two elements, the high priest would go into the holy place and even the holy of holies to represent Israel before God. But also the other idea of intercession is this idea of the offering of incense. The incense oftentimes in the Old Testament and New Testament is representative of prayer we see the incense being offered in chapter 30, verse 7 through 9. Chapter 30, verse 7 through 9 says this, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamp at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. 
And it's interesting because if you think about the incense that's being offered in front of the Holy of Holies, it served as a visual representation as the smoke kind of wafted up to the heavens, as if your prayers were going to the Lord. And if you also think about it, the incense smoke is probably the one thing that was able to penetrate the curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. Also as a visual reminder of your prayers being able to enter into the presence of God. Now for us as believers, we know that Jesus Christ also intercedes for us. Paul reminds, this, reminds us of this in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and praying for us, that we would be one with them, just as the Father and the Son are one through the Spirit. That Jesus is praying that the church would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. That he intercedes for us. But also, believers are expected to intercede for one another as well. And how do we do that? Well, oftentimes we think, when it comes to prayer time, we're waiting for the question, how can I pray for you? Rather than asking the question, can you pray for me? And I think oftentimes asking for help in the area of prayer is learning to ask the question, can you pray for me? And you maybe think, but that seems so odd, that seems so selfish. Well, if Paul asked for prayers, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and in these letters that Paul asked these churches for prayers, he the great apostle, then what makes us think that we can't ask other people for prayer? So how do we ask people for prayer? Yet a few days ago, my brother and I were going through the book Side by Side by Ed Welch. And there's a chapter in there saying, say help to others. And in this particular chapter, hopefully that book, if you're interested, is still offered in the book stand. If it's not, uh, let me know. I can lend you a copy. In this particular chapter, he's talking about asking others to pray for you. And how are you supposed to do that? There are these circumstantial events that are going on that you can ask people to pray for. I'm looking for a job, not enough financial provision. I'm looking to get into a medical school, residency, circumstantial. Then also to ask to pray for heart issues. For instance, I feel anxious because I don't know where I'm going to be next year. I feel angry because of how someone treated me at work. I feel frustrated because of things that are happening at home. So let me give you an example. So let's say someone says, you know, I've really had a hard time at home because the two kids, man, they didn't nap this afternoon. They were fussy the whole day. One of them spilled their cereal in the morning got milk all over the place, and then another person playing with the paint, got paint all over themselves. It was a rough day. And can you pray for me? Can you pray for me that I would not hold on to the anger and the frustration that I feel? And the scripture that kind of informs that particular prayer is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where it says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Or maybe it's about exam season. You have tests, and it's getting you anxious because if you don't pass this test, your grade is going to take a drop. It goes from an A to a B or a B to a C, and you really need to pass the test, and you feel anxious. You feel worried. So then you would ask, can you pray for me 
that, you, that God would help me cast my anxiety on him as I prepare to take the exam. And the scripture that informs this particular prayer request is 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says, casting all your anxieties on him and he will lift you up. That as believers, can we begin to ask people to pray for us rather than wait for the question, how can I pray for you? So in summary, we talked about the importance of asking believers for help, to ask believers to remind you of your identity, to ask believers to help you follow the Lord, and to also ask believers to pray for you. When I was in my last year of college, I took one of my last classes on instrumentation as a mechanical engineer. I still remember the professor's name. His name was Dr. Faruqi. He's probably European, if you can't tell from his last name. And I remember we were in the first day of class, he went over the syllabus, our course expectations, how many assignments we had, midterms, and they closed with this line. He said that if any of you need help during the lecture, if you don't understand anything, ask now. Because when finals come around and you're taking that exam, it's going to be too late to ask. So it's better to look foolish in the classroom than look foolish at the end of this quarter. And I took it to mean that if you don't ask for help now, it may be too late. So ask for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who is gracious to us, God who is holy. And yet you are still willing to relate to us and to connect with us. You connected with Israel uh, through mediation, through the priest. You connect with us through our great mediator, our high priest, Jesus Christ, and even through the intercession of other believers. And we pray that you would give us the humility, the humbleness that is necessary to ask for help, especially if we need it. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.